Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Good morning. Hey, do me a favor after the service. Uh, if you see one of the members of the band, say thanks to them because one of the things that I love about being at Journey Church is my sermon is preached and sung well before I step on stage. Uh, and so I'm just so grateful for that. So if you guys would do me a favor and thank them for that, it keeps me on task and my mind clear. Uh, if you have your Bibles, would you open them to the book of Second Peter? We're going to be in chapter 3, verses 11 through 14. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, by the way, Second uh, Peter is towards the back of the Bible. And there's a table of contents in the beginning of most Bibles that will help you find the exact page number. And if you are new or visiting, uh, or if you've just had a crazy week and you forgot what we did last week, you should know we are in this letter written by Peter, a disciple of Jesus, to several churches in hopes of instructing them and preparing them for something that is coming. That thing that is coming is the concept that false teachers will come into the church and they will lead people astray. But you can see these things happening. You can prepare yourself if you make the connection that you can notice them by their teaching, their, what we said a couple of weeks ago, their eschatology, their theology of what God is doing with this whole project of human history, where this whole thing is going. Because their eschatology will actually determine how they live. It'll determine their ethic. And so we've actually looked at in a couple of ways in which these false teachers, how they had a faulty understanding, a, a false and unbiblical understanding of where the whole project of human history was going. And because of that, they lived falsely. They lived false lives. Now, this isn't actually just a Christian theological theme. This is a basic premise that most people get. For those of you who know me, you know that I'm a recent transplant. My family and I recently moved to Arizona. We're from the Golden State of California. And in California, there are two, uh, especially in the area we're from, there are two eschatologies you run into all the time. And those are, first, the eschatology of environmentalism, which says that climate change, which is a human-caused event, has put us on a collision course with an extinction-level event because of our mismanagement. And so every time elections come up, you can actually see somewhat of a doctrinal kind of heresy trial with various Californian public officials. Do they really believe in climate change? Do they really believe that all of this stuff is happening? Does their eschatology and their ethics line up? Can we trust them? That's the message of a lot of environmentalists in California. Similarly, you can run into the eschatology of transhumanism, which is that technology will eventually push us towards the next stage of human evolution. Now, this one's not as popular as environmentalism in California because it's fairly elitist. You have to have a lot of money uh, and a lot of intellect and know-how, uh, essentially have the right set of skills and access to the right kinds of things. So it gets a little bit of side-eye. But every once in a while, you can come across these stories in Californian publications, whether it's the Los Angeles Times, the San Francisco Chronicle, where people are looking at these Silicon Valley tech entrepreneurs and asking the question of where do they think this whole project is going because they're investing 
mass amounts of money, mass amounts of capital, mass amounts of energy in investment in the progress of technology such that we can sustain human existence and more specifically their human existence for the rest of eternity. And so what you end up with is you have this constant interchange of looking at what somebody's doing, looking at how they live their lives, looking at their ethics and saying, what do they believe? What is their eschatology? Where is this whole thing going when it comes to their mind? And Peter has been preparing us for that. And in this text in particular, he opens up a Christian eschatology and says, because of this, here's how we should live. And so he lays out for us both an understanding of where he believes by the power, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this whole project of human existence is going and how we ought to live in light of it. If you would read with me in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 through 14. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolve, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Father, we gather here, we have sung, we have prayed, we are offering ourselves to you, Lord, in order to declare that you are holy and that your name ought to be made holy among us. So as we open this word, as we look at this passage, Lord, would you feed our souls from it? Would you grant us here clarity of understanding? Would you grant me clarity of expression? And help us see where we might repent, where we might praise you in light of this text, that we might move forward in holiness and godliness, pursuing you through your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray this morning. Amen. All right. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, as we encounter this text right away, we see that we have to anchor our understanding of what's going on here in what Pastor Jim preached on last week. The words since and thus connect us back in a formula to the previous section. And so Peter says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, anchoring our passage in this argument of eschatology and ethics, how ought we to live? Well, he's contrasting us, as we found out last week, with the false teachers. He says their eschatology, these false teachers, they denied that Jesus would return, that King Jesus would come back with his kingly judgment upon sin on the world. And so their ethics then lined up and they lived lives of revelry. They lived lives that he describes in verse 13. They are blots and blemishes. Oh, sorry, verse 13 of chapter 2. Blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. This is intended as an indictment upon their character, which signals that they are unworthy for the presence of God. Peter's audience, if they knew the Old Testament, they would hear echoes of something important taking place. In fact, echoes of the book of Leviticus. In Leviticus 21, 21, it says, No man of the offspring of Aaron the priest 
who has a blemish shall come near to offer the Lord's food offering, since he has a blemish. He shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. You see, these false teachers, well, let's, let me explain Leviticus. You see, in Leviticus, God said, your priests are to be holy. And so what I want you to do is I want you to pick people whose external appearance signifies, does not mean that they are, but signifies that they are to be holy. So if they have some malformity, some disformity, you should pick somebody else. They shouldn't draw near. Because that is a sign of the lack of perfection. Not because their hearts weren't holy, but he's giving you a symbol for the holiness required to enter his presence. And then Peter says, these false teachers, they are like those priests who could not enter. Except it's not external blots and blemishes they have, but they themselves are a spiritual blot and blemish. They are unworthy of the presence of God. He says there's coming a day, a day of God, a day of the Lord, in which all these things will be purged. Listen to the language of this eschatology which Peter gives us to correct our habits, our ethics, away from that of the false teachers. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, when the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works done in them will be exposed. He says again, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, and in the third place, the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. The heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. A survey of the New Testament would reveal that this is the most destructive language in the New Testament for the coming of Christ. It paints a picture of a cataclysmic event, that the coming of Christ in judgment is something from which the world never recovers. It never goes back. This is a moment in history where everything before it is different than everything that comes after it. And yet, it paints this picture of destruction with the language of continuity. You see, the image of fire burning things is not for Peter and his heritage fundamentally one of pure and utter destruction. I think we can think of that. For those of you who have been in Tucson for a while, you may have seen fires bring pure and utter destruction to areas of the environment. Being again from California, there's usually a hundred fires going on in California any given day of the year. We saw a few a couple years back that wrecked Massive destruction throughout the state of California, destroying and polluting the air quality. But that is not actually the historic Jewish understanding of fire. You see, Peter and his audience would have understood the concept that fire burns. They would have associated that with purification. Think about these texts. Proverbs 17.3. The crucible is for silver and the furnace for gold and thus the Lord tests hearts. Or Isaiah 48.10. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. Malachi 3.3. He, the Lord, will sit as a refiner of purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi. By the way, the sons of Levi were the priests in the Old Testament. 
If you recall back to when Pastor Jim preached through 1 Peter, you might recall then that the church, according to Peter, is a nation of priests. And he says, he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings of righteousness to the Lord. Or 1 Corinthians 3.13, each one whose works will be made manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and fire will test what sort of work each has done. You see, fire here in this in this theme, in this tradition, is not something that destroys. It is something that purifies and something that reveals. It melts away the dross. It melts away the imperfection. And what it leaves is the true essence of the thing that it has burned. And so one commentator on the book of Peter says this. While some of the language in 2 Peter 3.10 and 3.12 might seem to indicate a destruction of the present heavens and earth, other passages make the future of creation look more like renewal and purification. In light of Peter's close association between past judgment of the flood and future judgment with fire, it seems likely that while Peter has a drastic change in view, he is, he is not so much talking about complete destruction as renewal. This is why Peter can speak in the language of a new heavens and a new earth being the results of this fire. In fact, the Christian tradition has long held that it is not merely creation that has continuity into the new heavens and new earth, but it is actually culture. That if you read the passages speaking about heaven, if you read the passages speaking about where God dwells and what eternity is like, what you see there is music and art, architecture and cloth. You see creations of culture, artifacts that have endured. And you see them there because they were done unto the Lord. They were made in their essence holy because they were given to God. They were not made for human ambition. They were not made for human glory. They were made unto God. And so they remain. We might say then that the day of the Lord burns up all that is unholy because only that which is holy can survive in the presence of God. And yet, all things that are holy will survive and dwell in the presence of God. Those two sentences say two different things, and I hope throughout the rest of this message those two things become clear. This is the eschatology with which Peter presents us. A coming day where all things will be revealed by fire. A coming day where all impurities will be purged from this world. And heaven and earth will be made new. How then ought we to live? What should our ethics be? Peter tells us this in verse 11. Since all things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people should you be? The answer is provided, holy and godly. And in verse 14, oh, we'll get to that in a minute, actually. Holy and godly is the manner of our lives. Because again, only the holy can survive the presence of God. And all that is holy will survive the presence of God. The word holy means dedicated to God or set apart for God. It also means or can mean one that is morally pure, one that is worthy to be in the presence of God. Likewise, 
The word godliness means to be devout. It carries the connotation of reverence toward God. And historically in the Christian tradition, these two words have been put together in the word piety. And so when ancient authors of the Christian tradition have written about holiness and godliness, they have described it in the Latin with pietas, or in the English with the word piety. Here's how one author described that. I call piety that reverence joined with love for God, which the knowledge of his benefits induces. For until men recognize that they owe everything to God, that they are nourished by his fatherly care, that he is the author of every good, that they should seek nothing beyond him, they will never yield to him willing service. Nay, unless they establish their complete happiness in him, they will never give themselves truly and sincerely to him. Notice a couple of elements of this definition of piety. Reverence is there. Reverence is fear of something because of the great power with which you know it holds. As well, reverence is combined with love of God, which comes from knowing his benefits, what we would call the graces and mercies of God. Similarly, it has a recognition that we owe everything to God and that we are nourished by his fatherly care. That God is not some distant deity looking down upon us and casting judgment, but he is a father who oversees in the ways that dads do. He is the author of all that is good, and if we recognize these things, this author says, we will yield willing service to him. Notice then that piety, holiness, godliness are not fundamentally ideas that are ethereal or ideas that are mere abstractions or something that is just external works that you do, but that these things are tied deeply to relationship. That the concepts of holiness and godliness are associated with the concepts of a father's care for his children, of the creator's concern for his creation, and of God's relationship with his people. And all of this comes out of a story. So let me tell you that story. It goes like this. In the beginning. No arguments, no theological dialogue, no metaphysical structure. Simply in the beginning. And in the beginning was God. No apologetics necessary. He just was and he spoke. And when he spoke, that which was not now was. Another cataclysmic event where that which came before is different than that which came after. Because nothing had existed, God spoke, and then here we are. And so Genesis 2 zooms in and tells us a little bit about what happened when, this, when he spoke. He spoke all things into existence, and then he got down in the dirt, and he formed, according to the original language, man as a potter forms clay. And he placed man in a garden. He put him up in a place where his presence was felt palpably. One expert in the book of Genesis writes this. The presence of God was key to the garden. And it was understood both by its author and its audience as a given from the ancient worldview. Again, it is something which the author does not have to make an argument for. People just get it when they read it. That God's presence in the Garden of Eden is a given. 
And the Garden of Eden is better understood then as a temple garden in which the Lord would dwell among his people. So when you finish the first two chapters of the story, what you have is you have a God who has created a people and a place that are to be dedicated to him, that are to be holy, that are to be worthy, that are to be morally perfect and for his glory. By necessity, then, they are holy. They are godly. They live reverently under God's authority. But humanity, convinced and deceived by a cunning liar, pivots. They begin to believe that God is not all he's cracked up to be. That they could rule just as well or maybe even better if instead of adhering to his command to not take and eat of the fruit of one tree with which God put off limits. If they took that, they would have his knowledge, his likeness, and they would be able to ascend to his throne and rule. And so when they did that, when they took, when they ate, Genesis 3.24 describes how God responded. It says he drove man out at the east end of the Garden of Eden, and he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You see, man had to be sent out of this garden temple. He was no longer holy. He was no longer set apart. He was no longer perfect in his morals. He was no longer dedicated to God, so he had to be sent out of God's presence. Why? Because only that which is holy can survive God's presence. And yet all that is holy will survive and dwell in God's presence. Sin is a rejection of piety. Sin is a rejection of holiness and godliness. And so when you sin, instead of reverence, what we see is that there is greed and pursuit of self-glorification. Instead of love for God and knowledge of his benefits, what we see is there is resentment towards God and there is a belief that he and his commands are restrictive. Instead of reflection on his fatherly care for us, is the belief that he is miserly, that he withholds from us that which is good. Those are at the heart of sin. And so man is sent out of the garden for his own protection. And an angel guards the way back in such that no one will enter into the holiness of God until they have been made holy. Because only that which is holy can survive the presence of God. There's an interesting thing about the passage, and it says that there was, uh, it has the words in it that they were sent out the east end of Eden. Which is curious because it reflects something that takes place in Genesis 2 where it says that the Garden of Eden was placed in the east. But we're not told anything else. East is a directional marker. You have to have another waypoint, another, another object to measure east by. When somebody says, go east, your, your question should be, east of what? You have to know. The Lord God planted the garden in the east of Eden. Well, we get the answer of what east is related to as we read further on in the book of Genesis. In Genesis 4.16, it says, after Cain's jealous rage caused him to murder his brother. And Cain went away from the presence of God. In what direction did he go when he went away? He settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. 
You see, east is always associated in Scripture with moving far from God. So Cain moves east. And in Genesis 11, when we see a gathering of people, which we are told are from the east, because our author of Genesis, Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wants us, the readers, to associate the people in Genesis 11 with Cain. Cain went east. Here are people coming from the east. They find a land, and what do they do? They build a tower. They gather together. Genesis 11:4 says, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the whole face of the earth. You see, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you would know when God created the world, when he created mankind in his image, he said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. That would require that you spread out, but here in Shinar, in Genesis 11, what we have is a group of people who want to gather together instead of spreading out. And instead of spreading out to make God's name great throughout all the world, they want to gather together to build a tower so that they can ascend to his throne and make a great name from themselves. So the garden was planted in the east, symbolizing that there was possibility of movement toward God. That though things were good and holy and righteous, what could be done was there was always greater possibility of further depth of intimacy, of further depth of knowledge, of further depth of relationship, of further depth of love with God. Because God, unlike us, is infinite. You can always go further up and further in. So the garden was in the east. But when man was sent out of the garden, instead of finding a way to move closer to God, man continued to move further away. And so Genesis 4 is a movement east. Genesis 11 is a movement east. That movement continues. Until God, who is always in pursuit, reaches out in Genesis 12 to a man in the east. In the land of Haran, he finds Abram, and the text records this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land I will show you. What direction do you think that land is? West. West toward God. Not because it's geographically important, though it corresponds to geography, but because east and west are symbols of movement to and away from God. And so he's called to move geographically in order to fulfill God's plan for how he would make people holy. And that plan God calls covenant. The theologian J.I. Packer says the goal of God's covenantal dealings with his people, or with the goal of God's covenantal dealings, as it always was, is the gathering and sanctifying of the covenant people from every nation, tribe, people, and language who will one day inhabit the new Jerusalem and the renewed world order. And so, as this movement goes east, and as God draws from the west, we see in the book of Exodus that when God's people are away from the land of promise, he remembers his covenant, he hears their cry in Exodus 2, 23 through 24, or 25, says, and God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God delivers his people from slavery. And in Exodus 6, 7, it says that 
He says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. I will show you that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And so God brings them out of Egypt and in Exodus 19.4, he says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you up on, the, on eagles' wings and how I brought you to myself. Because this is no mere story of people doing external works. This is a story of a God desiring relationship. So he brings the people to himself. He gives them laws and instructions so that they can live with him and before him in holiness and righteousness. And he has in those instructions the design for a tabernacle. And he says, let them make a sanctuary to me that I may dwell in their midst. God's desire in spite of our sin is still to dwell with us. And yet this sanctuary requires a thick veil, a thick curtain to separate the people from the holiest of holies in the tabernacle because only that which is holy can survive the presence of God. And all that is holy will survive and dwell in the presence of God. God wanted to draw this people to him. He wanted to sanctify them. He wants to make them holy so that they can dwell with him. This is an act of God's loving kindness, his deepest desire. And as well, it is our created intention. And therefore, it's the exact thing we need. In many ways, the story of the Old Testament can be understood as God's continued pursuit of us in the East. Of him trying to teach us the requirements of holiness in order that we can dwell with him. So the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy tell of how we were made for God, but how we sinned against God, how the wreckage of what that sin has brought, and how God is working to bring us back to him. And then the books of Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings are describing the establishment of God's people, the giving of a culture and a kingdom which would be dedicated to God, which he would dwell in the temple in their midst, which they would worship him and be a light to the nations. But it's also a story of how mere external religion cannot make you holy. And how if your heart is not in the right place, the eastward drift of the human heart will continue to pull us away from God. Even while the body does the external superficiality of following him. And so the nation of God, which he erects, is then besieged and conquered and sent to exile. And then First and Second Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah tell the story of how in exile he refines a people for himself. He preserves a remnant which he will bring back to the land, which he will bring back to himself, now knowing more fully and more deeply what it means to be faithful, what it means to live before God in righteousness and holiness. And sprinkled throughout this narrative are the personal testimonies of Ruth and Esther, who pursued God in the midst of uncertainty, as well are the, the songs of love of a husband to his wife, which symbolizes God and his people, are the poetry and the prophecies, are the relentless refusal of Job to leave the God whom he loved, though that God slay him. 
all of these things give hints and glimpses, shadows of how one day the eastward drift of our hearts might be fixed and how we might dwell in a city which Ezekiel 48.35 says will be named the Lord is there. How we might one day eschatologically dwell in a city where God's presence is felt like it was in the garden. A city marked by holiness and love and joy. Because to say something is marked by holiness and love and joy is to say that God's presence is there. But as you finish the Old Testament, what you find is you still have this anxiety, you still have this question, you still have this internal longing of how on earth is God going to fix the eastward drift of my heart which pulls me from him. You may feel this in yourself. I think it's why songs that tell us about this are so popular. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Oh, take my heart, Lord. Take and steal it. The natural drift of the human heart is eastward. How will God fix that drift? Into this anxiety-ridden question, the disciple John speaks. In the beginning. You see, this is no plan B. This goes all the way back in history, and John is saying, from the very beginning, Paul will take up the words, before the foundation of the world was laid, God had this in mind. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men, and that light shines in the dark, and the darkness has not overcome it. Why? Because the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood. It's not about the family you're from, nor of the will of the flesh. You cannot drum up this desire inside yourself nor of the will of man. There's no externalities of religion you can put around this to solve this problem. How do you solve the problem? By the will of God. And this word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory uh, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. The salve for our pain, the answer to the anxiety, is that when we could not go to God to dwell with him, God came to us in human form that he might dwell with us, that he might live a holy and sinless life, satisfying the demands of the law, that he might die a substitutionary death so that any sins that would be laid at his feet would be paid for, that he rose again to show that God accepted this sacrifice and vindicated him, that he ascended into heaven so that he might dispatched to those who believe a spirit of holiness. The spirit of holiness. 
You see, in the Bible, it talks about holiness in two different ways. It talks about it as an objective once and for all thing. As in the word we use, justification, which means that you are justified to stand before God with your sins paid for because by his will, you have trusted in the person and work of Jesus Christ and you are clothed in his holiness, godliness, and righteousness when God looks upon you. It also speaks... It also speaks of holiness as in a moment by moment, degree by degree, inch by inch movement from where you were, dead in your trespasses, to life in Christ. As that Holy Spirit dwelling inside you convicts you of your sin and draws out a desire to look and live like Jesus, like our Savior. We might call that the subjective form of holiness, which traditionally has been understood with the term sanctification. And so Peter, believing this gospel and believing that eschatology of a coming day of the Lord in which all things will be purged, reminds us of this promise. According to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. He restates this in verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, the new heavens and new earth, be diligent to be found by him without spot and blemish and at peace. The summation of this argument that Peter is laying out is that belief in the eschatology that Christ is coming back, that Christ has made you new, that Christ will renew and purify this world and its inhabitants leads to a Christian ethic that directs us towards holiness and godliness. He says, be diligent here. Commentators connect this back to chapter 1, where he says, for this very reason, make every effort, same word, to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. And in verse 10, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. As such, we should recognize the necessity of work in the Christian faith. Journey Church, we do not drift towards holiness. The eastward pull of our hearts is always away from God. And so we must strive and put forth effort to grow in faith. We ought to open up our Bibles and learn of the God who has called us, who has saved us, who is healing us as we speak. We can also learn more about him by reading the writings of theology and apologetics, and as we, as we think through what is God like, we should strive for virtue. Faith is supplemented by virtue is another way of saying eschatology determines your ethics. What you believe will determine how you live. And so as we grow in our understanding of God, the idea is that we ought to grow in our godliness and holiness in the manner of our lives. 
This, by the way, is good for us. I think there's three really easy reasons to see why this is good for us. One, it glorifies and pleases God. And we, having been saved by him, ought to desire to please him. Two, it is how we are made. It is what we were intended for. It is the environment for which we were designed. And three, when we live godly and holy lives, it is a sign that we truly love our neighbors. Did not Christ, after all, say that the two greatest commandments were to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the reasons why we pursue godliness. And we could keep going through this list in 2 Peter 1, moving from 5 down to the end. But the key thing that I want you to take away is that only the holy will survive the presence of God, but all that is done in holiness that is dedicated to God will survive and dwell with God. So Journey Church, let us work on that which endures. Let us do that which honors God. Let us strive and make every effort for the coming day of the Lord. Let us fashion in ourselves lives that are living sacrifices unto God. Let us take up the word that we might know him better, that we might draw near to him. Let us bear the message of this God to our friends, family, and neighbors that they might encounter this holy God and be made holy as well. And finally, let us pray. For none of what I just said is possible without him. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, you are holy. You are other than, you are morally perfect. There is no shadow in you. There is no darkness that can survive your presence. We are being made holy. And so as this process takes place, Lord, I pray that you bring us to repentance again and again. That we see as we look upon your holiness in your word, as we reflect on your holiness in your son, that the Holy Spirit draw out of us a continuing deeper desire to move further up and further into relationship with you. That you restore us your presence and father we thank you that though we could not move toward you to dwell you sought us even donning human flesh that you might dwell among us and that we might be with you so we thank you for these things and we pray them in the name of your son and our savior jesus christ amen Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.